Welcome to TWW, The Weekly Wheel, where each week the Dharma Wheel rolls and delivers you new content available anywhere at any time in your everyday life. We present a mindfulness service, which has three components. First, meditation. And then we meditate with sound through chanting. You can have your mind wander when you sit in silence, but it's very difficult to wander as you chant. You need to focus on the next character, on your breathing, on the next line. And if you pat yourself on the back too much or become too self-aware, you'll miss a line. And then lastly, we have something called active listening, where we lean into and really listen to the Dharma talk given by our senseis. You could think of silent meditation and sound meditation through chanting as preparatory to get our minds focused and open and clear so we can really listen clearly and really take in the Dharma. And in a sense, it perfumes the mind. The mind is slowly changed as it hears new points of view, new perspectives, and new approaches to dealing with life. It's set up much like an in-person service. It's led, moderated by multiple voices. So you get a variety of opinions, a variety of, of perspectives as you go on your journey. So I hope you will join us now for this mindfulness service presented to you by the people at The Weekly Wheel and the Orange County Buddhist Church. Thank you so much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, it's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward, without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply, let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world, waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz, Namo Amida Butz. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namandabutsu. 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 We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters. And each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character. And it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant the Junidai found on page 49. Junidai or 12 verses of reverence, originated in the Mahayana tradition of India during the time of the Pure Land Master Nagarjuna, around 150 CE. The verses were later translated into the Chinese text that we chant today. Like the larger sutra and the Amida sutra, the text of Junidai describes the spiritual qualities of Amida and the Pure Land using poetic language. Please read the translation of the Junidai found on page 51, which describes in detail what the 12 verses of reverence actually means. We will now chant the Junidai. Amida 
Oh. 
Spiritual Vista. When I first began reading the larger sutra, I had a very difficult time. I had been taught that religious texts were meant to be read literally, historically. I wasn't able to do that as a Christian, and I was finding that I couldn't do it as a Buddhist either. Then I discovered the PBS series, The Power of Myth, where folklorist and mythologist Joseph Campbell was interviewed by the host Bill Moyers over six episodes. Campbell explained that myths carry deep spiritual meaning. I had also been taught that religious texts contain doctrinal truths, so I was able to interpret the mythic elements of the larger sutra as placeholders or stand-ins for philosophical teachings. So, for example, the role of Buddha nature will now be played by Amida Buddha. But then I came upon the essay on reading literature literally, concrete imagery, before Doctrine, by Louis O. Gomez. I was really shocked. How could a Buddhist scholar read Buddhist texts literally? But it wasn't as literal history, but as how a Buddha or Bodhisattva would literally see the world. It is describing the spiritual vista in which an awakened being resides. This essay is included as the auxiliary reading for Lecture 3 in Course 13a, Amida Buddha, 
at our online school, everydaybuddhist.org. It is a hard read. It is a long and sophisticated text, but the version I posted has the best bits highlighted in yellow, so it can be read in stages. One Everyday Buddhist student named Esther Shear, who is also an off-site online OCBC member, was particularly struck by this essay, and I wanted to share her impressions of it. I think what she has to say can be very useful for all of us who are sometimes unsure how to approach the fantastical narratives contained within many of the Mahayana Buddhist sutras. She says, Many years ago, I read a book called The Romantic Manifesto by Anne Rhine. She speaks in the book about her need to occasionally take a psychic-emotional vacation from the real world. We know of the poverty, strife, injustice, anger, etc., so we need to use fiction, films, to allow ourselves a chance to see our hopes and dreams actually come to fruition. Just for a few hours, our values and ideals win. It gives us the energy to go back into the real world and keep working to make the ideals more real. Gomez states that the Pure Land is our universe as it would appear to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and they have the power to manifest and transform the many aspects of our universe. The sutras describe their awakening visions of our universe. Again, not knowing the socio-political state of India at the time, surely these visions reflected the hopes and aspirations of the believers for what their universe might be. She says, I'm a lifelong Trekkie. There were several pages, starting on page 14, that describes all the different kinds of sentient beings who will be cared for by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Absolutely every single possible type of being is listed, and the ninth vow says that he will care for them all in any and all possible circumstances. What immediately came to my mind was the thought of the brave and compassionate members of Starfleet from Star Trek, perhaps especially the captain and crew of Voyager, as Bodhisattvas and Buddhas bringing aid to all types of every single sentient being they came across throughout the seven seasons of traveling through the Delta Quadrant. They meant entities who were crystalline, beings who lived in subspace, alien humanoids, etc., etc. There was no type of sentient being that didn't deserve their compassion and aid when it was possible to give it. Gomez also notes that these are exactly the concrete descriptions of what believers took to be the real world. Of course, the matrix comes to mind, which is the real universe. How would the mass of believers know? I wondered if there were anti-sutra groups who insisted that it was possible for human beings to be self-reliant, able to bring about the changes which would make the compassionate justice or whatever actually would come to fruition in their own village and town, etc. Thanks to the essay by Gomez, I too am able to complete my journey from literal truth to mythic truth to philosophical truth and finally to concrete imagery. In Gosho, Reverend John Turner. These ideas and others will be explored in more detail along the Everyday Buddhist course pathway. For unlimited access to all of our courses and content, you may subscribe for just $10 a month or save $25 with an annual subscription of just $95 per year. You can find us at everydaybuddhist.org. Thank you very much.
Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This podcast is copyrighted 2022 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, all rights reserved.